This morning I woke up about five o'clock thinking about this session over here, and uh, I began to review some scripture. And one of the verses that the Lord gave me that um, this morning, and I just was struck with, and I meditated on it for quite a while. It was real dark, and I was lying there thinking about this, these passages. And here it is: Here, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thine heart and with all thy soul, and with all thy might. Now, later on in the Bible, back in Matthew 22, about 37, I think it starts, 36 or 37, Jesus Christ said that the first and great commandment is that thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, and so on. He said, and this is the first and great commandment. Well, I've never meditated on that before. I've never wondered why. And the thought struck me, and I haven't got this thought out yet, but I'll toss it out just for your, if you'd like to think about it further. Does everything else hinge on that? Does every, why is this the first and great commandment? Does everything else hinge on that, I wonder? Well, I'm not prepared to say. But from the study that I did this past week on this subject, I wonder. For instance, turn with me to Second Chronicles chapter 29. Second <clears throat> Chronicles chapter 29. You have to go back to about verse 28 to get to the to get to the idea of the thing. 28 verse 25. We're talking here about Ahaz, this man that um, was such an ungodly man. And uh, it says in verse 25, in every, in every several city of Judah he made high places to burn incense unto other gods and provoked to anger the Lord God of his fathers. Then the rest of all his acts and all his ways, first and last, behold, they are written in the book of the kings of Judah and Israel. Second Chronicles 28:26. Then it says he slept with his fathers. The rest of his acts and all his ways, they're all written down. Now, um, we shall all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone may give an account of the things, you know, whether they be good or bad. Seems to me that God keeps a service record on us. I was checking my discharge a while back, and uh, no notice on the back there's a little, little just a brief summary of my service record. Tells when I went overseas, tells when I was wounded in combat, tells when I was sent home, tells when I was discharged, tells when I joined up. Gives a little of the history of my time in the Marine Corps. Not a lot, just a little. But somewhere there's a pretty pretty elaborate service record on uh, on number 871908. You know? I think God keeps one. He kept one on Ahaz here. It's all written down for us to read. And then his son took over. Hezekiah was began to reign when he was five and twenty years old, and he reigned nine and twenty years in Jerusalem, and his mother's name was Abijah, the daughter of Zechariah. Now, I'm sure that this young man, all of his lifetime, was grieved with his father's sin. And uh, this fellow Hezekiah, 29.2, says, And he did that which was right in the sight of the Lord, according to all that his father David had done. Now, notice this. In the first year of his reign, in the first month, he opened the doors of the house of the Lord and repaired them. He got right at the main job. As soon as he took over, the very first month, the first year of his reign, at the main job, See, he knew what the real problem was. 
Now, there, was, there were all kinds of evil in the land. You can read the, the, the fantastic evil that was going on. Immorality, injustice. I mean, you, you just run the gamut. This was happening in Israel. But he didn't fool around with all these peripheral things and try to pass a lot of stop this, pass a lot of stop that, pass a lot of stop that. He got to the heart of the matter. He said, if we can get these people straightened out with God, the rest of these things will be able to take care of themselves. So he got right at the heart of the issue the very first month of his reign. Verse 4, And he brought in the priests and the Levites and gathered them together unto the east street and said unto them... Now, he, he took the initiative on this thing. The religious leaders should have, by the way. The priests and the Levites should have taken the initiative, but they didn't. So he did. He got them all together and said, All right, now, men, we've got a project going here. Hear me, ye Levites, sanctify now yourselves and sanctify the house of the Lord God your fathers and carry forth the filthiness out of this holy place. He got his men together. He wanted to get them in shape spiritually, sanctify yourselves, and then get them right at the main job. He says, For our fathers of trespass, he identified himself with all the rest. He didn't say, he didn't set himself up on some little pedestal and say, Now, of course, I'm immune to all this, but the rest of you guys are sure fouled up. He, he says, We're all in this problem together. Verse 7, Also they have shut up the doors of the porch, put out the lamps, have not burnt incense. Of course, when you find in the Old Testament, the lamps or the light always refers to the Word of God. The incense, of course, refers to prayer. He was at the heart of things immediately and offered not burnt offerings. They weren't involved in the old national development program either. They weren't giving as they should be giving. And so there were three key issues he got at here. Verse 10, Now it is in mine heart to make a covenant with the Lord God of Israel that his fierce anger may turn away from us. Then he tells them his plans. And by the way, any of you guys thinking about going away or leaving the land to go to some place and beginning a work of some kind, start with 29 of, of Second Chronicles, and this is exactly how to start a work. Get something going. I'm just touching the highlights. He got these men together. He told them, what's, here's what's on my heart, man. Tells them his plans. Then verse 11, my sons, be not now negligent. He challenged them to get down to business themselves. And um, verse 15, they gathered their brethren and sanctified themselves. They got their own hearts right, and then they went to work. Then when everything was set, verse 20, then Hezekiah the king rose early and gathered all the rulers of the city. He got up early and got everybody else up early. And um, as soon as he got the report that things were ready, he got everybody up and uh, ready to go. And then he set everything in order according to the Bible. Verse 25, according to the commandment of David. Verse 27, ordained by David the king. Of course, these things were all written in the scriptures by this time. And he got everything in order. And then he says, now we've got to get the word out, what we're up to. And so in verse 30, he sent to all Israel and wrote these letters, everybody out. And verse 8 tells us the, the, the heart of his letters. Yield yourselves unto the Lord, he tells them. Yield yourselves unto the Lord. And actually, he received opposition from this. Verse 10, so the post passed from city to city through the country of Ephraim and Manasseh, even into Zebedim. But they laughed and to scorn and mocked them. Not a very pleasant reception. Nevertheless, certain ones of Asher and Manasseh and Zebulun humbled themselves and came to Jerusalem. It's a humbling thing, of course, to yield yourselves unto God. And uh, verse 12, also in Judah, the hand of God was to give them one heart, to do the commandment of the king of the, and of the princes by the word of the Lord. 
verse, um, chapter 30, verse 18, you get a little insight into the heart of this man and also to the heart of God, by the way. That little problem. They were supposed to go through a certain ritual before they could come and, and partake of this particular ceremony. And some of them hadn't gotten to do that yet. Verse 18, For a multitude of the people, even many of Ephraim and Manasseh and Issachar and Zebulun, had not cleansed themselves. Yet they did eat the Passover otherwise than it was written. Now get this. But Hezekiah prayed for them, saying, Ah, the good Lord, pardon everyone that prepareth his heart to seek God, the Lord God of his fathers, though he be not cleansed according to the purification of the sanctuary. He said, Now, Lord, these people haven't gone through all the ritual and all the Mickey Mouse that they're supposed to have gone to up to this point. Because they didn't know about it. They were out there in the Thules and they've been so fouled up. But now look, their hearts are right, Lord. Their hearts are really right here. They want to do this. So, Lord, pardon them and forgive them and let them do it. Then you get insight into the heart of God. And the Lord hearkened to Hezekiah and healed the people. It's the heart, man. See, it's the heart that God looks on. And then, um, verse 22, he got the word out to all these people and, and so on. And verse 26, there was great joy in Jerusalem. And this is, this is referred to in the scriptures, I believe, as one of the great revivals of the Bible. When the people were taken from a, from a, a situation that was really messed up into a place where all their hearts were set on God. One of the great revivals of the Bible. In verse 20 of chapter 31, Thus did Hezekiah throughout all Judah, and wrought that which was good and right and truth before the Lord is God. Verse 21 again gives us the key, I believe, to the, to the reason for the success of this man. And in every work that he began in the service of the house of God, and in the law, and in the commandments to seek his God, he did it with all his heart and prospered. What was the secret to his success? The secret to the success of this man was the fact that in every work that he began in the service of the house of God and in the law and in the commandment to seek his God, he did it with all his heart and prospered. That's the kind of a man that God blessed in those days. And I believe he's still looking for that kind of man today. Look at 1 Kings 2, 2 through 4. <laughs> 1 Kings 2. Now this is David's charge to Solomon. Solomon is going to take over the work. David is retiring. He's coming to Glen Area to, you know, take on a bigger responsibility. And so Solomon's going to take over the work in the area here. So he says, I go the way of all the earth. <laughs> Verse 2. Verse 1, Now the days of David drew nigh that he should die, and he charged Solomon his son, saying, I go the way of all the earth. Be thou strong, therefore, and show thyself a man. And keep the charge of the Lord thy God to walk in his ways, to keep his statutes and his commandments and his judgments and his testimonies, as it is written in the law of Moses, that thou mayest prosper in all that thou doest, whithersoever thou turnest thyself that the Lord may continue his word which he spake concerning me, saying, if, if thy children take heed to their way to walk before me in truth with all their heart and all their soul, there shall not fail thee, said he, a man on the throne of Israel. Boy, now there's something. You talk about the reasons behind the reasons. You talk about the reasons for a continuing strong work from generation to generation to generation. You analyze that passage. 
wholeheartedness is a qualification and a prerequisite for leadership. The first thing that David told Solomon when Solomon was taking over the work here, he said, okay, son, here's the key. Hit it with all your heart and all your might and all your soul. Because if you'll do this, it'll continue from generation to generation to generation. Wholeheartedness is a, is a qualification and a prerequisite for leadership and, I believe, a prerequisite for a continued generation of leadership being raised up. And if there's anything as important to navigators, navigator-oriented people, it's that. I had a guy come to me a while back and he said, what's wrong with such and such a place? Boy, it used to be a, a thing there that was really going strong. Things were really booming, you know, back in 01, things were really going great. But look now. Okay, let's look. What happened? Well, as you analyze it, they lost their wholeheartedness. They grew fat, cold, self-sufficient, lazy. That can happen. It does happen all the time. Now, why does that happen? Well, number one was wholehearted. But he wasn't diligent to pass along this particular concept and principle to number two. And of course, number two then wasn't for number three. And number three had less and so on. Another too cold to strike much of a fire in anybody. And only fire kindles fire. There's nothing else that kindles fire but fire. So if you want to pass the spark, and see the work continue strong, there's got to be a spark, and there's got to be fire. So God says one of the qualifications for leadership is wholeheartedness. And nothing less than wholeheartedness. We were back in the area. One of the guys came and said, um, we're talking about somebody for this particular wing of the dorm. And... Uh, Need a guy down there to really head that because it looked like things could really boom. And some guy told me, um, well, I think so-and-so is open to that. Well, then, of course, he's disqualified. Can't use him, obviously. So you can't use the guy who's just open. Well, yeah, he's open. I said, I want a guy that's eager. I want a guy that's frothing at the mouth. I want a guy that's slobbering in his bib. That's the kind of a guy that I want for that project. I don't want some open guy. I'm a wild-eyed guy that's really, you see, there's a big difference. That's one of our problems. We use people that are open rather than eager. Whole. Some of you know Johnny Sackett. Now, old Sackett was at Grace Bible Institute. And um, we got we got really real close. And finally, after months of fellowship, he came and uh, we were talking and I said, Johnny, how would you like to be our key contact down there at, at Grace? If we want to plan something, why we call you and you be the guy to pass the word and so on. We kind of be, you'd be responsible to... Oh, good. He said, I'll pray about it. So he did and said, sure enough, I think that's great. I said, now here's what's involved in this, my friend. And I went over him, what it meant to be on the team. Okay, so that, that's the kind of thing I want. So we had a project planned one weekend, and I said, uh, I called him, he said, oh, I, I can't do it this weekend, Lee, I'm uh, involved in uh, this. I said, well, can you get out of it? Oh, yeah, but, you know, it, it's kind of a nice thing, and I just kind of want to do it. 
I said, all right. So we went ahead without him. And I got with him the next week, and I said, well, buddy, I'm sorry you just disqualified yourself from the team, but that's the way the that's the way it is, my friend. We'll look for somebody else. Well, he started to weep. Tears, blubbering, you know, and crying and repenting and all kinds of stuff. I said, I look, I look, you did it, I did it. You knew what was involved. You knew the kind of men we wanted. So that's it. So we said in Ron Rohrbaugh's Volkswagen. He was crying and shook up and everything. So then he left and got out. I drove home. I got a letter from him. And he bought it, called me or come out, just wrote me a letter. Seventeen reasons why I should be on the team. Man, I mean, he was wholehearted. He was eager. He was frothing. You know, he was slobbering. So I kept the letter for a while and then called him and said, Okay, if you mean it, good deal. I could let that slip, you know. I could let that slip. I said, well, so he didn't want to do it this weekend, so good deal. But that indicated to me that he was not, did not have the kind of a heart that I saw that we needed. I believe, gang, there's something as a matter of wholeheartedness that we take too lightly. So a qualification for leadership and a prerequisite for leadership is wholeheartedness. But I think something else. I think it's also a key qualification to be a good follower, a right-hand man, one of the team. 1 Samuel 14, 6 and 7. And Jonathan said to the young man that bears armor, Come, let us go unto the garrison of these uncircumcised, and maybe the Lord will work for us, for there's no restraint to the Lord to save by many or by a few. And his armor-bearer said unto him, Do all that is in thine heart, turn thee, behold, I am with thee according to thine heart. Now there is a whole hard response. He said, Jonathan, I can see what's going on in his mind. Maybe not, but this will go on in my mind, I think. Let's see, he wants the two of us to go over and attack the garrison. Hmm. Kind of a screwy project. You and me against the whole bunch of them over there. I'm not sure that's too valid. Now, Jonathan, have you really thought this out? Have you really prayed about this? Do you think this is what we should do? No, that was not this guy. Turn thee. Behold, I am with thee according to thine heart. Or Daniel 6.3. See, Daniel was the key man in somebody's, somebody's uh, regime back there. Lauren told us last night he was, he was um, in a number of, of kingdoms. And in 6.3, Then this Daniel was preferred above the presidents and princes because an excellent spirit was in him. And the king sought to set him over the whole realm. This excellent spirit that was in him. Or take 1 Samuel 18.5 when David was, um, was working on Saul's team. Then David went out whithersoever Saul sent him and behaved himself wisely. And Saul sought to set him over the men of war and he was accepted in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. And God, of course, took these men and used them mightily. Now, I've heard in days past this said around Glenary. I haven't been around here much the last few, the last past year, I guess, so I don't, I'm already in touch. But in some of the former days, I've heard this said. Well, Lee, I can follow so-and-so, but not that so-and-so, see. He's, um, 
he's not much of a pace setter. He's not a pace setter in this or that. So, And so we get a guy on the crew that doesn't follow the lead man wholeheartedly because he sees a fault in the lead man. And so he drags his heels because he happens to see a fault in the lead man. I remember the first guy that told me that. I took him to 1 Samuel 18.5, showed him how David responded to Saul, and then asked him, has your lead man ever thrown a javelin at you? No. Has he ever tried to kill you? No. Well, then Saul wasn't much of a, pace, of a big spiritual pace setter either. He, you know, he wasn't, his heart wasn't on, he didn't have David's best welfare at heart. He wasn't trying to watch out for the welfare of his man. He was no leader. He would just happen to be the man that was in charge at the time, and David knew it, and so he responded with his whole heart in spite of this. So to me, one of the prerequisites to being a good team member is to give your whole heart and not complain about this, this, or this. Because that's the Lord's responsibility. It was God's responsibility who he, who he happened to have heading up the work at the time. He had put him there. I don't know whether they have any problem here now, but in case we do, why, there's my sentiments on it. David's lead man wasn't much of a warm-hearted, loving, spiritual leader. You know. Why? Because David was a wholehearted man, period, in anything. He was wholehearted as Saul's assistant. He was wholehearted in battle. He slew Goliath, didn't he? That takes some wholeheartedness. He said, well, now look, I can be wholehearted in battle. Get me out in the soul-winning job. I can be wholehearted in that, in building disciples. But boy, day after day after day, sawing boards or fixing the plumbing or changing light bulbs or sweeping out somebody else's dirt. I, Lee, this, um, you know, the grass and the trees and the buildings, these things just don't get me excited. I can get excited over praying with somebody about his soul. But the grass, I'm not sure I can get excited about the grass or the buildings. If I were in David's situation, then I could be wholehearted there too. Out in the battle, you know, praying to God, the Psalms. But I'm not. I'm here switching light bulbs around. I'm here papering, see, plumbing. Uh, these little cards that have holes in them. This is my thing all day long. How can you get wholehearted about stuff like that? Now let me show you something. Turn with me to 1 Chronicles 29. 1 Chronicles 29. Now, here is a here is not well, I'll just read it. Furthermore, David, I'm sorry, verse 1. 1 Chronicles 29, verse 1. Furthermore, David the king said unto all the congregation, Solomon, my son, whom alone God hath chosen, is yet young and tender, and the work is great. For the palace is not for man, but for the Lord God. Now I have prepared with all my might for the house of my God the gold for the things being made of gold, silver for things made of silver, brass for things made of brass, Iron for things made of iron. Wood for things of wood. I, when he was gathering wood, I mean he was gathering wood with all his heart. 
When he was gathering iron, he was gathering iron with all his heart. And had there been paper around, he'd been gathering paper with all his heart. Here was a wholehearted man. You put him on the truck and send him down to the lumber yard to get a load of lumber. He went down with all his heart to get that lumber. Okay? I think that the Bible points out that wholeheartedness in every realm is what God is looking for. And as I read the lives of men from front to last, I find that those that God used had this as the basic characteristic of their life in everything. If David is out alone with a bear, he clobbers the bear wholeheartedly. If he's out taking the lumber truck down to get some lumber for the... He's out doing it with all his might and all his heart. I think this is what God is looking for in every area. Grass, trees, buildings, whatever. First Chronicles 29, 2 and 3. See, this characterizes the man. And in every work, Hezekiah again, and in every work that he began, the service of the house of God, and in the law, and in the commandments, he did it with all his heart and prospered. Ecclesiastes 9.10, And whatsoever thy hand findeth to do, do it with thy might. For there is no work, nor device, nor wisdom, nor, nor knowledge in the, in the grave, whithersoever thou goest. This is the reason, by the way, one of the reasons why we should be wholehearted in everything we do. Let me go over that again with you. And whatsoever thy hand findeth to do, do it with thy might. Because look, there's no wisdom, no knowledge, no device in the grave where you're going. And our life will soon be over. And we cannot afford to waste a minute of it. When we were in Lincoln, Larry and I went outside one time. He was about this tall, and taller than I am now. But we went out together, and he was... You notice his breath. Look at there, Dad. I said, yeah. It's cold, you know, about zero. He said, what is that? I said, that's a vapor. That's your breath. Vapor is... So uh, he said, what's a vapor? Try to explain a vapor to a kid sometime. What's a vapor? <laughs> well, I tried it. I said, by the way, come on, I'll show you something in the Bible. So we went in and sat down, and I showed him, your life is a vapor. My life is a what? Look. Your life is a Vapor. He said, that doesn't last very long, does it? I said, no. <laughs> your life is a... That's it. That's your life. I feel young, but I got gray hair. You know, I about had it. <laughs> your life is a... That's your life. Well, as long as it's only... Why not give it everything we got during that little, huh? Why not? Why spend half-hearted and whole-hearted? Why not all whole-hearted? I mean, as long as that's all it is, why don't we pitch in and give it everything we got for that much time? Well, you face a problem, of course. our national anthem, 20th century, not Stephen Foster's. Well, don't work too hard. Okay, see ya. That's how we tell each other goodbye. 
Well, take it easy. Right all. That's how we... This is, this is our spirit. This is what we do. I saw a bunch of guys up here that I guess are down the other lodge. I got involved in weightlifting with Bill Cole of Minnesota. I was up there one time. And uh, he really challenges you. Know, so I was pushing with old Bill. and I, I got 185 pounds up. Most I've ever had up. And I was... One false move, and, you know, I would have had it. <laughs> and some guy left. He said, well, take it easy. Take it easy. If I'd taken it easy at that minute, I'd have killed myself. <laughs> but he was so used to saying, take it easy, that no matter if it meant the guy's death, he'd tell him to take it easy. If it meant sudden death, he'd tell him, take it easy. If it meant stamp out his life, take it easy. Now, what promotes wholeheartedness and what keeps a guy that way? Well, I got down two things. One, knowing you're in the will of God. Knowing you are in the will of God. Why in Acts 16 could Paul and Silas sing those psalms when they were in that dungeon? And if, if the one that I was in while I was in Rome is actually the one that they were in while they were there, I don't think, you know, many of us have been singing psalms when we were down that place. But there they were, apparently, singing psalms. Why could Joseph, who had been sold into Egypt, sold into slavery, cast into prison, accused of everything that, was, that he had never done, he was accused of it, including immorality with this woman, I mean, just everything came along and he got accused of it and had a heart. How could he keep his devotion to God through all that and keep his spirits up and accomplish all that he did and then when his brothers show up, say, well, it was the Lord's will. It was the Lord's will that I... See, he knew it was God's will that he be there. He had that conviction all along. And so all along. Or Genesis 22, the passage that Lauren referred to last night. Where could Abraham find the strength and courage to obey God when he said, Take thou thy son, thine only son, whom thou lovest, and offer him for a burnt offering? He got that strength and courage knowing the fact that he was in the will of God. He knew he was doing God's will, and it kept him. Hebrews 11.8 Another passage about Abraham. Hebrews 11.8 By faith Abraham, when he was called to go out into a land which he should after receive for inheritance, obeyed, and he went out not knowing whither he went. Where are you going, Abraham? Where am I going? Yeah. Well, I'm going that way. Is there any more than that? No, that's all I know. What are you going to do when you get there? You know, I don't have the faintest idea. I don't know. What kind of security will he have? You're leaving all this here and, you know, her and all this. What kind of... I don't think I'll have any. I don't know what's waiting for me out there. Why are you going? Well, you're not going to understand this, but the other night I heard a voice. A voice. Uh-huh, you heard a voice. But he obeyed. He knew he was doing God's will. And you look at the life of Abraham, a wholehearted man. Now, did God bring you to Glenary? Well, that's all you need. 
That's all a guy needs to keep him wholehearted around here. If he knows God brought him here. Well, maybe there's one other thing. The other thing could be that knowing that what you're doing is making a direct contribution to the cause of Christ. Knowing that you're making a direct contribution to the cause of Christ. Every summer they give me a conference staff and they say, these are yours. Run some conferences. So we go to work. And with our present setup of having the, the discussion group leaders meeting for breakfast at the tables with the conferees, why that means the discussion group leaders get together a little while before that to, for prayer and everything to, before each breakfast. And so that means that we're get over there about 7 o'clock in the morning. And then uh, after the meetings, we all go down to the King James and sit around and talk and eat ice cream and so on until then when the conferees leave, while well, the conference staff cleans up that beast down there, so that means that you about 11 o'clock at night, 11.30. Uh, 11.30, probably more accurate. So from about 7 to 11, every day, well, every day we have conferences, which is all but, you know, all this three-day breaks in there once a summer. Um... But I watch this crew. Man, they're enthusiastic. They are. Their morale is up. Their spirits are high. They're great. They're a little blurry-eyed, but they're feeling great. They're going great. Why? Well, every week, somebody comes along and says, Boy, my life was changed this week. My life was changed. Or I got saved. And we get excited. We're all thrilled. We get together and we think what a miserable, you know, excuse he was when he got here. And boy, when he leaves, how his heart's on the Lord. And we're all pepped up again. And so we boot them out after breakfast in the morning. And at 3 o'clock in the afternoon, here comes the next horde in. And we think, oh man, here they come. But, you know, opening night and Lolly and Legassi and they're all from. <laughs> 7 to 11.30. For another eight days. But we get testimonies every day of the summer conference when somebody comes and says, boy, listen, that deal this morning, I know I'm, and so on. You see, life changed. Now I want to ask you something. Who is more important to the, to the summer conferee? The guy that cooks his food or the guy that leads his songs? Well, the guy that cooks his food. Because we could send him in there and tell him, all right, little Plymouth Brethren meeting this morning, fellas and gals, just uh, sing whatever you want to sing. So some guys stand up and say, let's uh, sing eight. And they all sing eight. Let's sing twelve. They sing twelve. Some guy gives a little words that I always like fourteen. They'd get along without a song leader if they had to. You know that? And they'd probably get blessed doing it. But they'd starve to death without that guy now in the kitchen. Who is more important to the summer conferee? The guy that leads his singing or the guy that hauls his dirt out of the castle every day? To hear these, uh, what, 100 people tromping dirt. See, 18 pounds of dirt every day into the castle. 18 pounds we shovel out. Who is more important to him? The guy that hauls his dirt out or the guy that leads his songs? The guy that, that, that hauls his dirt out because pretty soon nobody would come. They wouldn't stick around this place. Do you know that? But I'm not sure that this dear guy down on the mobile crew is really convinced that hauling that dirt is making a direct contribution to the cause of Christ, or at least it might not be every day, and so he gets a little down. Or the guy that, that cooks that chow. Or the guy that does those dishes. But being convinced 
that the things that you're doing. And so what I would do is to get along with God and say, Lord, is what I'm doing making a direct contribution to the cause of Jesus Christ? And if it is, then hit it with the whole heart. And now we're coming to the home stretch. Enemies of wholeheartedness. How much time have we got? Hmm, ten minutes. One enemy to wholeheartedness is pride. One summer, a fellow from my area came out to the Glen. And he was here for a while. And uh, he had been greatly used of God that year in soul winning and, and uh, winning men and getting them underway in the Lord follow up. He was really doing great. And then he came to the Glen. I came out here for staff conference. Of course, we got some time together. He said, Lee, this lead man of mine, um, um, man, I'm teaching him on evangelism. You are? Yeah. He's to come to evangelism. I'm teaching him. And follow up. I know far more about follow up than he knows. Why is he my lead man? Blah, blah, blah. He went on that way for about 15 minutes. I'm further along than he is, he told me. So I said, uh, further along? In everything? Isn't there one thing you can learn from him that will make you, make you a better Christian? That one thing? This guy got in such bad shape before he left that Rod Sargent and Chuck Farah, who was then the head of the training program, took him off for a whole weekend and invested a whole weekend with him just to see if they could help this poor guy. But he was beyond help. Pride just bristled all over him. And today, he is in one of the biggest messes of anyone that I know who claims to be a Christian. Dawson Trotman was asked to go one time to speak at a school, I think it was. And it was on this basis. Now, if you... Would you come? Because the guy that we invited to speak, we're not sure whether he's coming or not. We haven't heard any confirmation. He may show up. But anyhow, if he, if he does show up, then of course he'll speak. But if he doesn't, we need somebody. So would you come over on that basis? Sure, Dawson. So the NAV gang all went, sat on the front row, and here's that Dawson. They got, you know, five minutes till, three minutes till, and one minute till. And boy, the NAV gang waiting, because here's old Dawson going to give it to him. And guess who shows up? This other guy. And as I get the story, it's kind of a sweet little fellow, you know. He sort of came out and was <laughs> over and, and was very pleased to be there. And, and uh, <laughs> well, some of you knew Dosh. You know. <laughs> so um, when it was over, why? One of them said, uh, well, now, wasn't that something? <laughs> wasn't what something, Dosh said? Well, that. <laughs> Didn't you learn anything? Learn anything? Yes, learn anything. Apparently then Doss went to work. <laughs> Doss had really gotten blessed. Man, this guy had instructed him. And he had really challenged him. Because he had the goods. He had something to say. And he'd said it. And Doss had gotten some help. And the principal Doss always used to tell us, listen, gang, you can learn from anybody, boy. You can learn from anybody. Don't let pride stand between you and learning something. 
And if you're involved in a situation where somebody is heading it up that you think, well, maybe I am a little further along in this thing. Maybe not. You know, but that's what you think. It still doesn't mean that you can't follow that guy wholeheartedly because this guy's got something he can teach you. Anybody has. And I had a passage down here that I would like to have shared on this, but I see that I'm not going to get time. So, um, on this subject, the subject of pride, setting you aside and keeping you from a wholehearted obedience to God, sometime analyze 2 Chronicles 26, one of the key passages that I know on the subject. No, the whole chapter. Chapter 26. 2 Chronicles 26. The story of a young, who was a young man when he became the area rep. And, um, did great right at first, and then everything began to fall apart. He had a problem. But if a guy keeps his heart open and humble before God, he can follow anyone wholeheartedly. The second thing I got down here is in Luke 14. Luke 14. Sixteen through twenty. Then said he unto him, A certain man made a great supper and bad many. Sent his servant at supper time and said to them that were bidden, Come, for all things are now ready. And they all with one consent began to make excuse. The first said unto him, I have bought a piece of ground that I must needs go and see it. I pray thee, have me excused. Another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen, and I go and prove them. I pray thee, have me excused. Another said, I have married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. Couple that now with Deuteronomy 20. Deuteronomy 20, in case you've never studied Deuteronomy 20, Deuteronomy 20 are God's principles of war. If you're interested in the battle, if you're interested in the battle for souls, and the battle out in the, what Lauren talked about last time, building in battle, well, the principles of war are, are neatly analyzed for us in Deuteronomy 20. And they don't exactly coincide, by the way, the, the principles of war that the, that the um, military people have gotten uh, worked together. These are God's principles of war. If your Bible is like mine, it says laws to be observed in time of war, something like that at the top. I don't know how yours might say it, but any other principles of war. And the officers shall speak unto the people, saying, What man is there that built a new house? And it's not dedicated. Let him go and return to his house, lest he die in the battle and another man dedicated. Is there a man around here that's thinking about his possessions? Like this man in Luke 14 that was thinking about his plot of ground? If so, then don't take him out to battle. He's involved with possessions, not the battle. Better not to have a man like that along. Verse 6. What man is there that has planted a vineyard and not eaten of it? What man is there thinking about going out and working his vineyard? The guy that's thinking about going out and working his vineyard or testing his oxen, his oxen, don't take that man out to battle because he's more involved in his work than he is in the battle. Better not have him along, it says here. Verse 7. And what man is there that has betrothed the wife and not taken her? Let him go and so on. What man is that thinking about his wife rather than the battle? Eyes in Luke 14, you see. Notice how these three things parallel. Deuteronomy 20, the principles of war, the principles of discipleship in Luke 14. Parallel. 
Right down the line. And you'll find this, by the way, in other portions. Okay. Possessions, your work, and some other person. Enemies to wholeheartedness. Possessions. Jeremiah 2, 12 and 13. Be astonished, O ye heavens, at this. Be horribly afraid, saith the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewn them out cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Can you imagine people leaving God and getting involved in the things of this earth, the possessions and all that goes with it? Well, that happens. Or his work. A guy can let his job come between him and his God and quench the fire and he becomes half-hearted. And I had a couple, three illustrations of people that I had known who had done that. They started well and they got so involved in this job that they didn't have time for anything. Prayer meeting, the church, sort of everything took a backseat to this job. Or, of course, a gal. Verse 20. Had a guy in the home one time and um, an old boy that's now down in Andalusia, Alabama, he came to me and he said, um, that guy's not wholeheartedly with us, Lee. I said, I've been noticing. I wonder what's wrong. I wonder what the problem is. Well, I don't know. Discovered he was having immoral relations with a gal in town while he was living in the nav home. Another guy came to the Glen. He was really... On fire, it seems. I mean, this guy... In fact, he was so impressive around here that Sandy went to him personally and privately and had a little talk with him about pitching in with us in the work and all. Coming back for a longer period of time and so on. Then I began to notice his heart began to grow cold. And I asked one of the guys about it. He said, yeah, I've seen that. Maybe we were to talk to him. So we had a conference and we were together and I said, let me talk to you for a little while. Is there something bugging you? Well, so about a half hour later, I discovered that he was living in sin with a married woman. Pride. Just plain sin. These things are enemies, of course, to wholeheartedness before God. Of course, these things we must watch. Well, what is it that God wants? Well, I believe that one passage in Chronicles and in every work that he began in the service of the house of God and in the law and in the commandments to seek his God, he did it with all his heart and prospered. Every work. Driving the truck down to pick up lumber? Part of it. Going out to Fort Carson to engage in the spiritual battle for the souls of men? That's part of it. Every work. 